the night before Thanksgiving, I looked out my back door window and I saw two possums sniffing around on the back porch. I guess they were hungry and looking for food. So I went ahead and I got some cat food and I brought it outside and I fed them. And I came inside and sat down and I came up with this story that I call the miracle of the two possums. On the night before Thanksgiving, you will be greeted by two hungry possums at your doorstep. If you refuse to feed the possums, you'll be doomed to spend Thanksgiving listening to your bad-breathed uncle rant about politics while watching the Lions lose. And you'll also step in dog shit once a day until the winter solstice has passed. But if you choose to feed the possums, Sasquatch will ride a unicorn to your house and bestow upon you and your loved ones, but mostly you, his great gift of delicious pies. So when Thanksgiving comes around, if I find two possums on my door, I'm going to choose to feed them. And I hope you will too. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is David Bazan. David is a singer and a songwriter who lives in Seattle, Washington. And you can find out everything you need to know about David at davidbazan.com. David was on the road doing a tour of living rooms, and he played here in Nashville. And he came by the next day, and uh, we recorded this in my living room. And after we were done recording, we sat and talked for about an hour, just about whatever. Now, David's a really good guy, really great energy, just I really enjoyed being around him a lot, and I hope I get to hang out with him in the future. He was a bit of an open book, and we talked about a lot of stuff, and I appreciate him being so generous. But we should jump right into it. Here's David Bazan. You know, I played, my dad was a music pastor growing up, and so he and he gave us my sister and I piano lessons, and I played clarinet. And in junior high in Lake Havasu City, the deal I had with my dad, he I wanted to play saxophone, and he wanted me to be able to play in orchestras because he was a cellist, so he played in orchestras. And um, there's no sax in orchestras, but there's other woodwinds. So he suggested I play clarinet for three years. Um, and then after three years, I could switch to sax because the embouchure is it's easier to go from clarinet to sax than vice versa. And uh, so in seventh grade, it was time for me to switch over to saxophone, but there was a dozen altos and a dozen tenors in the band, and the band director was like, if he wants to sing clarinet, we'll have him, but we, I don't need another saxophone player. And uh, my dad said, well, is there any other instruments that you need you know, somebody on? And he said, well, we're shy of drummers. And I looked at him real bright-eyed and... <laughs> And I said, could I play drums? And he said, well, do you want to? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And uh, so we, then we went to the music store and traded my clarinet for a drum set. 
Really nice clarinet, really crappy drum set. <laughs> but it's still the best trade there ever was. So so I started playing then and mostly played in marching band and pep band and church. And then in ninth grade, I was in a thrash metal band for a minute. It's just some weird dude in, um, from another town who had an ad in the paper that my dad saw. And he was like, oh, this is a, it was a Christian thrash metal band. And um, he's like, oh, this guy, maybe you want to play with him. And I, I was very happy that he was thinking of me, wanting me to, you know, get my rocks off playing thrash metal. Um, but then once I moved to Seattle, I hooked up with a guy called Damian Gerardo, like the second or third day of high school for me up there of my sophomore year. And we started playing in a band together that very day from 91 till 97. And uh, that was like a post-punk band. And there was a church that we went to, uh, he went there, and there was sort of like, um, you know, it was a pretty thriving music scene around this one church because they were so mellow about everything. So they would have shows usually once every six weeks, once a month maybe. And there was, you know, so many bands from around the region, probably 30 bands that were actively kind of pairing together for bills and playing shows. And um, so we mostly played there. We played several house shows. But, you know, we didn't play that many shows. We just rehearsed every Tuesday night. Very few shows, if any, were as fun as that for us. We really liked playing. Um, we did play one bar, this bar called the Crocodile Cafe um, in Seattle. It was like a showcase back when those were, ha- I mean, I know Nashville showcases are still pretty common, but the rest of the world, it's, <laughs> no one do, does those anymore. Just leave the case off for a show. <laughs> you know, my, my dad was the music pastor at an Assemblies of God church, and that was a big part of the Assemblies. But because I never heard my mom and dad speak in tongues, there wasn't, I don't know, it kind of moderated my experience a little bit. For one, the services were at my church never got crazy. When we would go to camp meetings and things like that where, you know, churches from all over the region were there, then you'd see people being slain in the spirit, so-called, and speaking in tongues, and it'd get pretty exotic. Um But I was kind of sheltered from a lot of that as a kid just by the fact that my mom and dad were so moderate. Um, I mean, you know, it's a real showy kind of thing. It's a, and my parents were both pretty, pretty meek in that way. And so it was pretty interesting. I did go to my first camp, like sleepaway camp, uh, which was an assemblies of God camp at eight. And, um, they had this the altar call where they said, you know, if you're saved, but you want that next level of intimacy with God or however they would have said it then, you know, come on down and you can, we'll, you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit and you'll speak in tongues. And so I went down. I really wanted it, you know, bad. And um, so I was down there praying for probably 90 minutes, you know, crying and all emotional. and But it, it didn't happen. And... um so I was one of the last people down at the altar just praying and being pretty patient and just waiting for it. I was eight, you know, crazy. And uh, this woman comes by and says, well, what are you praying for there? And I said, I'm, you know, wanting to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And 
she said, okay, well, let's, I'll pray with you. And she did, and nothing was happening. So then she jumps to, well, maybe, you know, just maybe loosen your, your jaw a little bit and just hear the, you know, the phrases or the words, the tongues that I'm speaking, and you can kind of just, you know, maybe say what you hear and then kind of basically prime the pump, although she didn't fully, you know, kind of say that. And so... I was like, okay, and I was pretty worn down at that point. So I, I did what she said, and as soon as the first pretend me mimicking her started coming out of my mouth, she's like, oh, hallelujah, you know, you you got it, you got it. And she was a grown-up, so I kind of trusted her and um, left there thinking that that had happened, although it didn't feel like it was supposed to. Where It was just me. So I tried to do that a couple of times in my bedroom, They'd say, if you don't know what to pray about, which I never did because I was a kid, then use your tongues, your spiritual, your prayer language or whatever they'd say. And so one time I sat there on my bed and I started saying the shandarabarara, whatever nonsense. And uh, it just dawned on me in a very real way that I was, that it was bullshit. Like that was obviously bullshit. And I I felt myself turn into a, you know, on, on the Bugs Bunny, how the the head of the character will turn into a jackass head. And I just felt my head morph into a jackass head. And I didn't swear at all then, but I but I knew a couple swears. And I said, this, this is bullshit. And I kind of steeled myself against it for from then on. And uh, that was a, a moment that for me was full of grace, if you will. <laughs> Were your parents proud of you uh, later on that you played music, and are they were they supportive once you got some success? And they've been supportive the whole time. Um, a quick anecdote uh, illustrating that in 1997, um, I was working as a barista in Seattle, and uh, I really wanted to quit that and do really just do music full time. My bills were very little; my rent was like less than a hundred bucks a month. And I could have band practice in my bedroom, you know, two or three nights a week if I wanted. And um, didn't have a car to speak of. If I did, it was, you know, it was, I had nothing. I mean, it was a couple hundred bucks a month with food, three at maximum. And I mean, we were playing every weekend. So I quit my job. And then that was in October. And then went down to Thanksgiving at my great aunt's house in Phoenix where all my extended family were down there. And uh, I had, you know, dropped out of school not too long ago, and they all knew that because one of my cousins was kind of helping me pay for school. Not kind of, they were helping me pay for school. And uh, so at that Thanksgiving, there's 75 people there, and everybody's saying, so what are you up to? You know, you're not in school anymore. You, you're working. And uh, I was given a drum lesson once a month and a, and a guitar lesson once a month. And... Uh, so I says, uh, yeah, I'm giving music lessons, you know, quit my, you know, my coffee job and I'm doing that. And my mom overheard me say that to a couple of people and she pulled me aside and said, Hey, um, why are you telling people you're giving music lessons? And I said, well, you know, cause I, I am. And she's like, no, you're not. And I said, well, you know, and she said, you're doing it because you don't want to say that you're doing the band full-time. And I said, yeah, I guess. But she said, don't do that. Tell them what you're doing. 
it's really great what you're doing. You know, so don't be afraid to tell them that that's what you're doing. If I hear you say the music lessons thing again, I'll be, you know, upset, you know, kind of thing. And that was this heavy affirmation, you know. I was 20 or 21, you know, and so they've always been really supportive. They were. I just played a show in Seattle a couple, maybe about a week ago, and they came down and, um, you know, came back after after the show backstage and gave me hugs and kisses and great show and so pretty cool well um vic had just started working with undertow music which is the management company that managed myself and will johnson to this day and vic and mark eitzel who also at the time was with undertow music um and will had kind of hatched this idea that they were going to do a little band together where they would get together and learn each other's tunes and then go out and do a little tour. And I don't, I think, I think I came pretty late to the, to the game, but somehow somebody said, well, maybe Bazan wants to do it too. And I said, yeah, I'd really like to do it. And so the first time I ever met Vic was f- flying out to Hartford in Atlanta and met Eitzel at the airport and Eitzel and I drove down to Athens together and drove right to Vic's house where Will was already there. And we just sat around a, his kitchen table and had a little bit of food, I guess, and drank. And some people smoked weed maybe. And, you know, everybody just got nice and warm and a little fucked up. And, you know, it was amazing. It was just this, I, I'll never forget it. It was, it was brilliant. And, uh, you know, Vic was so lively and so charming and uh, full of amazing stories. And Eitzel is equally charming um, in his kind of Eeyore uh, way and um, equally full of brilliant stories and perspectives. And so my perception is that Will and I just were kind of in a way, just sitting at their feet, you know, just just playing, you know. And um, so then we spent a week at Vic's house learning each other's songs during the day and then walking into town at night and uh, getting destroyed and then doing the whole thing over again every day for, I guess, five or six days. And then we got in a van and left on tour for three or four weeks. And um, it was uh, it was remarkable. Um, one story about Vic: we couldn't take his van. Him being in a wheelchair, he has a you know a handicapped van with a you know a lift on it and everything. There was no way to fit all of us guys and uh, all the gear in that van. So we took the Centromatic van, and it was determined that uh, Vic would ride shotgun every day. And what we would do is we would open the passenger side door and wheel his chair up into the V. And he could pull himself up and and hold his weight up on his legs. And then he would kind of slowly twist himself around so that his ass was in that V made by the door. And then he would move over to where his ass and his shoulder blades were up against the, the seat. And then we would each take turns 
bending down and getting them under the legs and lifting them up into the passenger seat. And that was how it was going to be. And so I was the first guy up to lift him up. And as I'm approaching him, I'm starting to think, man, I don't know a goddamn thing about his uh, paralysis or whatever it is. It was like, can he, I mean, he could clearly feel something in his legs. Do his legs hurt? Um, this pressure, I mean, I was just, you know, a lot of self-doubt. So I get him up underneath the legs. And as soon as I get his weight up off the ground, he just starts howling. Oh, 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 oh. And so I'm fucking panicking. And so I finally, I get him up into his chair. And he's not heavy. I get him up into his chair. And I just, I'm so sorry, Vic, if I did that wrong somehow. It seemed like it really hurt you. And he's like, oh, man, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter, you know. So then we all take turns. And he doesn't get out every single time we stop someplace, mercifully, you know. So every time one of the other guys is doing it, I'm around the corner, peering around, trying to watch and see if there's a way to do it better than I was doing it. But every time he gets, they would get his weight up off the ground, he would just start howling. Oh, 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 And so finally, two or three days into the tour, we're in North Carolina, and I watched Will do it. And um, I just, I didn't realize I was so obvious that I was watching or whatever, but Vic could tell he was howling, you know, just like usual. And he saw me watching and saw how earnestly I was trying to glean something from it. And he broke and his eyes kind of rolled a little bit. And I knew from his facial expression in that moment that he had just been fucking with us <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> he just didn't, it didn't, it didn't hurt him at all. He just said, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to have a, a time with these guys. And, so and I was like, you little fucker. <laughs> and so his nickname was Lil Fucker for the rest of the, the tour. And he was like, oh, come on, man. I can't have a little fun. And, you know, it was, uh, it was classic. Classic. Um, well, I, you know, I had been touring solo for four or five years, starting in about 2005. And... Then I put out a solo record, like my first full length under my own name in 2009 and always meant to kind of get a band together. And so that meant I needed a van. And uh, I thought that it also meant I needed a trailer. At the time, I suppose I did. But so we set about trying to figure out how to get a van and a trailer with you know, not a lot of money saved up. And so we decided we were going to make an overpriced T-shirt um, sell a t-shirt for 20 bucks that said I helped Bazan buy a van on it and uh, we sold enough shirts to net 7,500 bucks and so I went and I got a a $10,000 van and a $2,000 trailer and then you know made enough on the tour to pay that uh, down and then didn't walk with any money left over but that's remarkable as it is and so so yeah, I went and I went and got this van, and um, it came with um, natural gas tanks uh, underneath the, the back, in between the, the rear tires. Um, and I went to get a trailer hitch put on it, and the guy says, "You know, this is the day before we're leaving for tour. This is how I roll." <laughs> um, and the guy says, ah, "You can't put a hitch on it because the the bolt points that you would 
you know, used to bolt the hitch on um, are uh, used for the CNG tanks right now. So you got to pull those CNG tanks and then we can talk. So this is like four o'clock in the afternoon, the day before we're leaving. So I go to my mechanic and I say, hey, man, I got, I mean, I'll pay you whatever you need. Like, I, I got to get these CNG tanks off. And he was like, man, I don't know. We'll do our best. So the next morning by 11, he called me and said, it's done. Come get it. I bought the kit to put the trailer hitch on and crawled under there myself while the guys are all calling me like, where you at, man? Where you at? We're supposed to leave. We're supposed to leave. And and I'm under there with, you know, a crescent wrench just putting on this trailer hitch and, and get the trailer on and get it all loaded up and out the door. And um, it had 87,000 miles on it when I bought it. In 2010, we did, I don't know, two or three band tours. I did some solo touring, not in the van, but used the van. It was amazing. So in 2011, um, we got offered uh, to open for this band, Jimmy Eat World. With, I, you know, with what I paid the guys and everything, we, you know, I think our budget was around 900 bucks a day, and I think we were being offered 700 bucks a day or something like that. And Like, well, we should do this tour. We got to figure out, without paying the guys less, how to save money. Um, and so we said, why don't we... Now that I think of it, I don't know that it, how it saved me money, but we decided to cook food on the road. And so we brought out, um, at that point, just a camp stove and a bunch of fixins, and we made meals every day. Um, we'd Pretty much every meal we would cook. And then on the next tour, I realized, oh, a, a proper pantry built into the back of the van would help keep everything organized. So on a house show tour that I did, I decided I'm going to camp in the van and build a pantry in the back, and cook my own food, live in the van. So I did that and got it all, the kinks worked out so that the very next band tour, the, everything, the pantry stayed in the van. I pulled the bed and the desk and everything out, put the seats back in, pulled a trailer, had a van pantry. And we had some of the best food because the bass player, my friend Andy Fitz, is a brilliant cook, just really intuitive, can just riff with whatever you give him. Um, you know, often we would be rolling to the store. The tour manager would say, hey, we're pulling up to the store here in about five minutes. I need a list from you. And Andy would just sit there and kind of look up into the ceiling and just kind of calculate. And then he'd just rattle it off. I need an onion. I need some, you know, radishes. I need some Israeli couscous. I need, you know, these things. And then within an hour, we're in the parking lot of this store just having a feast. <laughs> and we had this table we would pull out. We had a little slot for this folding table. So, like, in downtown Orlando, you know, we just break out this table right on the sidewalk. The van's parked in a in a metered spot. We're cooking in the back of the van. It's just five guys sitting around this table amongst these you know skyscrapers you know having food and uh it was phenomenal it was really fantastic um so we did three band tours that year and then i did two house show tours in 2011 um and i took the van out for every one of those tours so i went fully five times around the country um in 2011 in the van and it was fantastic um 2012 i took it out 
three times on house show tours and one time around, so four times around in 2012. And um, it was at the end of that year. We were in Chicago, had played our show at the Metro, and then we're overseeing Crooked Fingers at um, Shuba's and John Vanderslice. And um, we were just hanging out with those guys afterward, and there was cops all around outside. And we didn't, I mean, it's just Chicago, so it's closing time, so it made sense. Somebody finally said, hey, I think that's your van down there that got hit. You're like, oh, fuck, man. So walked down there, and a drunk driver, they were just pulling the car away from the trailer, and it just smacked right in the side. And um, the crazy thing about it is is the pantry configuration that we had in the, the back of the van at that time wasn't complete. I had a little bit more work to do, so I brought out a couple of portable sawhorses, two sheets of three three quarter inch ply, and a couple of saws with me, so that on a day off or something, I'd kind of break out the saws and put together some more stuff. And um, so along the left side of the trailer, which is the side that the drunk driver hit, there was two full four by eight sheets of uh, three quarter inch ply that kept him from just driving right through the middle of the. Because it's basically balsa wood that is, you know, the shell of those things. So what it did was it absorbed, instead of him just like like a knife piercing the middle of the, the trailer and fully destroying all of our gear, just coincidentally, that plywood was there. So it reinforced the side of it. So it pushed the whole trailer and twisted up the back of the van, wrecked the bumper and all that stuff. So the next day we had to drive to Grand Rapids. So we got up at 6 a.m., me and the tour manager, took it down to the body shop, got a new bumper on, transferred all the stuff out of the trailer into a U-Haul truck and just, you know, <laughs> craziness. And then we got on the road and never looked back, never had a trailer again. And um, and then this year we hit a we hit a deer in Weed, California. And uh, it wasn't that much damage, but the, the van by this point had, Roughly, it was like two hundred forty-eight thousand miles on it, um, and so that means it's worth about three grand. So, any damage is going to total it. <laughs> so that's what it was, and the, and it died, and um, you know. But I lived in that van half the year, you know, for the last few years, and it was beautiful. Chevy Express thirty-five hundred, two thousand two tan. It's weird to feel remorse for an inanimate object but you get so attached to these things i yeah i I've, i feel the exact same way it seems silly and i it's not how i think of myself generally but i was moved to tears you know definitely when i was i knew that was the last time i was going to see it in reading in a junkyard you know yeah. it, for me um it's it was sort of about the well it came about as a stopgap because the label wanted me to lay low until my new record came out in eight months or whenever it was going to be. And I needed a tour because that's the only way that I have to make a living. So we were trying to figure out a way to kind of lay low and have people pay me money for me to play my songs for them, you know. And when we kind of broke it down and I was like, that's all this has to be. Like, however we can sort it out where... People pay me money, and I play my songs for them. It could be in a house; it doesn't, you know, doesn't matter. And um, 
my manager was like, in a house, you're fine with doing that. I was like, yeah, man, let's figure out how to do house shows. Like, And then it turned into, it's just about the freedom to go on tour whenever I want to, whenever I need to. And there's no gatekeepers. Even my booking agent, there's just very little. Sometimes if I'm leaning on the major markets a little too hard with house shows, he'll say, well, let's stay out of New York. Let's stay out of whatever. But other than that, the answer is just yes. And playing house shows there, you know, I played in Shreveport on this trip. I played in Jackson on this trip. Um, played in Waco, Texas on this trip. You know, and there's those, you know, the analog to those towns all over the country. I played in Scott Depot, West Virginia a couple trips ago. It's just anywhere where there's a host that's like, I think I want to do a show. There's going to be people around and um, or willing to make a little trip or whatever. So, yeah, they just have ended up being about just the freedom to kind of do it how I want to do it and, and win. And, um, and then also... I'm just a lot more content in the space of playing my songs in someone's home. There's no reminders of the pie in the sky. There's no reminders of, there's no distractions. The promoter's not working another show across the street at the giant theater where the national's playing or whatever, you know, and not that that is bad for promoters to do. I want them to make a living and, I've had great experiences doing that, but it's a distraction as a performer. You're just, everything you do is just a little less than. It's not, it's like all that stuff. It's sort of, you're on the bottom end of this, um, this world that is so up its own ass. And when I'm in someone's house, I'm not at the bottom end of anything. I'm in someone's house playing my jams and I'm not aware of, the music business. I'm not, it's not even in my head. And um, I love that. And the people putting on this living room show are probably your most hardcore fans. Absolutely. People who love your music and will appreciate it the most. Yeah. Yeah, and the people at the show, I mean, it's a, it's just a, it's a sweet deal. And I'm able to kind of take stock of who I am as a musician and who I am as a an artist, I guess a little easier in that context. Um, and then, you know, when you have just like a drop dead, fantastic night, it, it, you know, it leaves you buzzing for a while. Everybody can feel it in the room. You know, there's no, there was no one who was at the bar being like, Oh, I missed that. It's like, you missed it. Like, how'd you, you know, it's like everybody's right there. So I really like it. It, it's my bread and butter. I do play club shows still, you know, maybe a quarter of the time. But um, unless I become, you know, really hugely popular and I'm playing theaters or something like that, which could happen for a minute, I suppose, but it'll always settle back down to me playing house shows. It's just maybe there'll be a blip or I'm not. But I feel that's another thing. I just, it's like, this is this is the ditch that I get to dig for the rest of my life. And I'm, Real happy to be in it. You're on. You're going to Chattanooga tonight. Yeah, I'm going to hightail it up there. I got to work out my my rig just a little bit, so I might try to steal 20 minutes in the hotel room and strum my guitar. Playing the 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 real trick for me is that I want to play electric guitar, but I don't want to have a PA. So getting a little amp 
that will do its thing at that sweet spot and be able to sing over it is really tricky. Um, so I've been working hard to make that happen, and I just got a new speaker at Corner Music today, and I think it's voiced a little better than you know the one that I had. Have you tried a Fender Champ? I have. They're too loud. A Fender Champ's too loud. Yeah. If you know, if the arrangements. So right now I'm you know just playing cowboy chords and strumming, and if if I really worked on the arrangements. Um, the guitar arrangement's a little bit more. I could get away with a much louder amp and just kind of sing in the holes a little bit. Um, but as it is right now, like I'm, I got this one watt, you know, amplifier, which is crazy. But it's pretty cool. <laughs> I appreciate you coming over here. It's beautiful to have you in my living room. Thank you so much, Otis. I really have enjoyed it. I hope you have a safe drive to Chattanooga, man. I will. <laughs> All right. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank David for stopping by my living room here in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about David at davidbazan.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.